Have you ever uh, noticed, and I know you have, that this world loves to believe lies? I mean, I think that they love to believe lies more than possibly eating. Perhaps that should not be surprising, as the God of this world, Satan, was described this way by Jesus Christ in John 8, 44. He says, You are of your father, the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. As most people in the world are not Christians, they are by default listening to the lies of Satan And they follow him in his deceptions. Just look at the astonishing lies people today are willing to believe. Come on, you're allowed, a man is allowed to just simply say he is a woman. And he's a woman. That moment? I mean, honestly. But just as egregious is that in this wonderfully designed and self-regulating system that God has designed... Man is responsible for climate change by our own puny efforts. And don't get me started on abortion. That it is, I recently read some pastor at some church, and I will use scare quotes on that, saying that it was a loving act for Christians to endorse abortion. That if Jesus were here today, He'd be pro-choice. And just a note on uh, this real quick. As I've said before, uh, Jesus is here today. uh, And God hates child sacrifice. Just so that we know that that's all really clear. The list of people, uh, lies that people believe is astonishingly long. And I'm sure you can add many more yourself to this list. And yet it's Christians who are said to believe fables, to believe fairy tales. I've heard that. I'm sure you've heard that too. I saw a headline just yesterday, and it's not about Christians believing in the Bible and the, the uh, history that has handed down to us, but that people believe that, that the most likely people to believe in conspiracy theories in America today are Christians. We believe in conspiracy theories. Now, you must remember that those conspiracy theories include that Donald Trump did not collude with the Russians to get elected, that COVID-19 began in a lab in Wuhan, China, Another conspiracy is that uh, ivermectin and uh, uh, the other off-label drugs work to cure illness. I have horses myself, so, you know, I can proudly say I take horse medicine. That, That electric vehicles do not run on free power, but actually come from coal-fired electricity plants. The fact that 
these conspiracy theories all turned out to be true. Now think about that. Find me a conspiracy theory that you as a Christian believe in that has not turned out to be true. And I guess I'd go with Bigfoot. Uh, but, but alien spacecrafts are a little iffy right now, okay? But the fact that all of these theory, conspiracy theories that I just pointed out have turned out to not only be true, but endorsed by either the people who said all along that it didn't happen, like Chinese government, American officials. But the fact that they turned out to be true means that rather than Christians being more likely to believe things that aren't true, they actually tend to see things as they really are. Funny, isn't it? Sort of like we have the mind of Christ as we examine the world. It is the world that believes the lies of this age. One of those things that the world has bought into hook, line, and sinker was first introduced by a gentleman naturalist named Charles Darwin in the 1850s. And contrary to popular belief, and I have been taught this in my life, Darwin was not a pastor's son, nor was he a Christian trying to prove the Bible correct. None of that is correct. Instead, Darwin was an agnostic, raised in a family of Unitarians. So take that the way you want to take it. Unitarians on both of his parental sides. He got caught up in, and until you read about these things, there was anti-Anglican philosophies of the rising professional scientific class in in 1830s England. These things were already being debated. The rising professionals did not like the Bible. They did not like the Anglican hold on England. And as academics will do, they were already debating these things when Charles Darwin got involved in, in them. On publication, his book, Origin of the Species, took hold with these professional scientists who embraced natural selection and approved his theories and applied his theories to all of anthropology and on into geology and, as we can see now, into cosmology about the origins of the universe. The intention of these scientists and Darwin's thesis was never benign and never a search for the truth. Darwin wasn't looking for the truth when he fabricated, well, when he you know, fabricated his thesis or came up with his thesis. You can decide which one it was for yourselves. Instead, as it has been not just since Adam's fall, but with the rebellion of Satan and his angels even before, the rejection of God, God's creation, and his standards. This is what it was about. Satan and man want to be the captains of their own destiny. Darwinism is their means of erasing God from creation. 
This is why Christians for nearly two centuries have been rejecting this theory. It's not about being... Uh, It's not about crossbreeding dogs or observing moths adapting to the smoke-filled skies of London in the 1800s. By making all creation, along with man, nothing but a fluke, a cosmic accident, man has attempted to erase God himself. You can't deny the, uh, uh, the results, the success of that effort all around In every industry and institution, atheists are pulling the strings of society. And we see that without a doubt. The trouble for those who deny that God exists and that the universe came to be through a combination of time and chance is that saying so does not make it so. Now last week, as we ended our study in Acts 14 with Paul preaching to people who are unfamiliar with the Hebrew scriptures, probably had never even heard of them in their life. So he's preaching to them. The apostle who usually started with God's revelation to men through scripture instead to his purely pagan audience points to God through God's creation. And though they knew nothing of Hebrew scripture, they worshipped pagan gods and had creation myths that, though false, gave Paul an opportunity to teach them God's truth. Now, the local pagan Romans had decided, due to local legend, as we saw last week, that Barnabas and Paul were Zeus and Hermes come down from heaven. Now, identify, and I didn't mention this, identifying a mortal with gods in Greco-Roman society was the highest compliment you could pay them. This was a wonderful honor to be celebrated as a god yourself. It wasn't, as we would call it, blasphemy to them. We, Christians, would not take identification as God, as a compliment, as we have seen with Paul and Barnabas. But to the Greco-Roman pagans, it was the highest compliment that could be paid. So verse 14 says that they upon realizing what was happening, that they were about to be sacrificed to with a bull by the local uh, priest of Zeus's temple, they rush into the crowd, um, tore their clothes, and in verse 15 said, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Paul made an appeal to them of the living God who created all things. If these townspeople had been early adopting Darwinists, This task would have meant nothing to them, but because they were in fact not Darwinists, but merely pagans, and I say that with a little irony here, they were just good, hardworking, earnest pagans, they heard Paul out as he continued on with this line of reasoning. If the um, Lystrans wondered why they had never heard of this living God, who created everything, Paul answered them in verse 16. He said, in the past, he, God, let all nations go their own way. 
Paul points out that God left Gentile nations alone. The Jews believed that only they were under God's law. When they looked at the Torah, they realized that the pagan nations were not under God's law. Paul pointed out, and I, I mentioned this last week in Romans 7, uh, 7, that if it were not for the law, Paul would not have known sin. And he means that he would, not that he did not sin, but that he would not have known what it was because without a, without a law to point it out, there was no driving license in the United States for the first 30 years of cars on the road. Anybody could drive of any age. It did not matter. There was no law. Therefore, there was, it was not illegal. Uh, the first airplanes were flown with men that did not have a license to fly, right? Because there was no license to fly. There was no license to drive. There was no law against these things. And I have been wondering, watching SpaceX and these other startups, why the government is involved telling them they can go to the moon or not. But I guess if they can tell you if you can drive or if you can fly, they can tell you if you can go into outer space. Paul said, if it were not for the law, he would not have known sin. Did Pontius Pilate know he was sinning when he washed his hands of Jesus' death? Because no, he did not. The highest good that a Roman governor or prelate could do was keeping the peace. They really prided on the fact that the Roman Empire kept the peace for some 250 years. That wars did not break out unless they instigated them to crush people who were going to cause problems. To a Roman governor, the greatest good was keeping the peace. And an individual man was of no importance at all. And while God let the pagan nations go their own way, even from the beginning, he said that it would not always be so. That he would be sending and saving all nations. The Messiah would come to reconcile all men and all nations to God. The message that Paul is preaching in Lystra is actually putting them on notice that that time had come. That the time of God leaving them alone and going their own way was over. Their worthless, vain gods are now replaced, whether they like it or not, by the living creator God, just by them hearing about it. Because the law had come. And though God did not intervene in the life of those nations as he did constantly with Israel, he did not leave them with no light, as we saw last week. As Paul said, there was enough light from God's creation that they might crawl their way to God by looking at it. And though God had left the nations alone, Paul said, here's how you know the God of creation was still there, no matter what. Verse 17. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from your heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food 
and fills your hearts with joy. The light of creation illuminates the goodness of God. Secularists think that we, that the world we live in, fine-tuned for all life, so stunning in its beauty, and I was just looking at some pictures of some of the places that I will never see on earth that are so... Do you ever think that God just sat back after creating these things and said, wow, that's good, because he did, and it's in Genesis. He saw what he created, and he said, and he saw that it was good. God delights in that beauty. And we all should be able to see God's handiwork in the work of creation of this earth. It's like saying Mohammed, uh, Michelangelo's David came that way in exquisite detail from the, from the marble quarry. Somebody just dug it up and it showed there. No, no. Michelangelo's David shows the hand of its creator in every stroke of the chisel. The testimony of God can be found by anyone who looks by the world he created, in the rains he sends from heaven, by the crops that come in season that provide plenty of food, and in the joy, it says, that life provides. But even these obvious arguments for the living God could just barely keep these pagans from what they wanted to believe in. Okay? No matter what Paul and Barnabas say here, these people want to believe that they're Zeus and Hermes. They want to believe that Zeus and Hermes just popped in again for a cup of tea. They wanted to believe that their pagan gods, with their human faults and petty grievances, their gods who were just as flawed as themselves, were in fact in charge of the world. Because in, if you think about it, who would want a true God? Who would want the real God? The loving God of all creation watching over you. Then you are known. Your failures are seen. Your shortcomings as a foul shadow before the light of the Lord. And that's all you would be. It was better for the Roman pagans to worship vain idols than to turn to Jehovah God, be responsible for their sins against God, and be responsible for their attitudes towards God. Verse 18 says, Even with these words, they had difficulty from keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Well, despite the crowd's desires, Paul and Barnabas managed to keep them from giving divine honor to mere mortal men. It was not for their own sake that they worked so hard to dissuade the crowd because they were no, in no danger. If the crowd sacrificed the bull to them, Paul and Barnabas were safe. They weren't like Herod Agrippa who accepted the, the worship of a God, Paul and Barnabas weren't accepting anything. If somebody had sacrificed a bull to them, there was no big deal there. They weren't accepting that sacrifice. 
We cannot stop people from worshiping what they want. Even today, people worship the oddest objects and ideas. Our job is to instead teach God's truth. But the chips in this increasingly secular world continue to fall where they may. So with that, Paul and Barnabas have dealt with the crowds wanting to sacrifice to them. They are not Zeus and Hermes. The sacrifice has been put off. So all's well that ends well, right? Well, not quite. Between verses 18 and 19, and again, the way Luke writes, I mean, there is no passage of time here. You think 19 follows 18 like morning follows night, but it does not. A length of time has passed between verses 18 and 19. We do not know how long because Luke has not seemed to fit to inform us of exactly how long. But Paul has been preaching now in Lystra for weeks, maybe months. And verse 19 says, Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. Paul has been teaching long enough in Lystra. Now, Iconium and city in Antioch weren't that far away, but it did not take that long for word to get back to those cities that had just recently driven Paul out that he was now down in Lystra doing just what he had been doing in Antioch and Iconium. Paul has the reverse situation, reverse experience of a situation that um, actually he was really familiar with. As a young man, known by his Hebrew name Saul, he was the one with the warrant in his hand. He was the one leaving Jerusalem and chasing Christians wherever they had fled to. He was the one bringing the full force of the law with him to the imprisonment and even death of Christians. Now instead, the roles are reversed. The Jews from city in Antioch and Iconium didn't wait to get Paul outside the city gates to murder him. Now that is generally the way it's done. You get him outside the city gates, away from the sheriff, right? It won't necessarily come to your detriment, but they can't wait. These Jews speaking to those disaffected by... We remember that in all of these cities that Paul went to, some believed and others did not believe. And if you were lucky, it was about 50-50 and you had a chance. But the Jews, speaking to those disaffected by the missionaries' preaching, prevailed with their lies about Paul's preaching and his intentions. Because everywhere Paul went, remember... People were saying he was trying to disrupt society. And you know what? They were right. Paul was trying to disrupt society. Right now, Christians in this country are trying to disrupt society. I will plead guilty to that. Because society is wrong and Christianity is right. Anyway, these Lystrans now against Paul outnumbered Paul's disciples, we have to assume. 
It does not say that in Scripture. And the mob didn't hesitate to subject Paul to death by stoning. With that deed done, they dragged him outside the city and left him in the street like a dead dog. They just threw him out. But know what Luke does and does not say here. Stoning was a common remedy in those days for things such as blasphemy, adultery, things along that line. And we know that from scripture itself. Just like the Roman soldiers at the crucifixion of Jesus, and I've pointed out that Roman soldiers were really good at identifying when a person was dead. That was their job, okay? They were good at it. They knew when a person died. So did people familiar with stoning know when that they had inflicted uh, fatal wounds upon a person. They knew it. it was, it's not that hard when you drop a rock on somebody's head to know what you've done to them. Just like the Roman soldiers at the crucifixion, knowing a dead body when they saw one, putting the lie to the Jesus swooned on the cross there and then revived. Those townspeople knew when their stoning had taken Paul out. Only then did they drag Paul out of the city. But Luke doesn't claim here that Paul was dead. He does not claim a resurrection miracle here. Paul said that the crowd thought he was dead. The word thought here in the Greek is the word supposed. They supposed he was dead. They had done enough, enough damage that Paul, they supposed, was dead. You can bet that if Paul was dead, Luke would have said so. And this is one of the things I love about Christian scripture, is that Luke did not embellish this. He could very easily have said that Paul was killed and resurrected by the hand of God to continue. But that's not what he said. He said what happened, that they supposed Paul was dead. Verse 20a says, But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. Now look at, look at, look at that sentence, you know. Hey, you know, disciples gathered around him. And he got up and went back into the city. I would maintain that this was no less a miracle than resurrection would have been. The stoning Paul received should have been fatal. These people knew how to administer a stoning. They knew fatal injuries when they inflicted them. And they thought, suppose Paul was dead. But Luke says after the disciples had gathered around him. So let's stop there. Luke doesn't say what the disciples did, but you all know what Christians do when someone is in dire need. Common Christian practice would have been for them to lay hands on him and to pray over him. Do you doubt that that happened? I can't prove it by scripture. But that is what Christians normally do. And matter-of-factly, Luke reports that Paul got up and went back into the city. You can just see Paul getting to his feet, adjusting his clothes, shaking the dust off. And then in testimony, 
than in testimony to the hedge God has placed around him to protect him. He goes, he goes back into the city that had just stoned him and resumes what he's doing. What kind of a testimony would that be to the, to the people who had stoned him? That the man that they thought they had killed gets up and walks back into town. Later on, Paul will say that he bears the marks of Christ, stigmata in Greek, that he bears the stigmata of Christ. And many believe that he is alluding to this here, that he had visible marks on him for the rest of his life from this stoning that he called the marks of Christ. And in an anticlimactic epilogue, verse 20b concludes, the next day he and Barnabas left for Derb, or Derby. I don't know how that's pronounced. Pick it up. Okay, let's look at this one more time. He is stoned to the point that the people stoning him thinks he's dead. He gets up, shakes himself off, and goes into town again. And the next day, he leaves for another town on his own. I love that story. Why is it that man would much rather believe a lie than even God's truth? We can see every day the conspiracy theories that Christians are said to embrace come true one after another. And still the world, meaning the ruling elites and meaning the print media and meaning the talking heads on TV, while acknowledging the changing hot takes on the news that Christians had believed all along, still consider Christians to be know-nothing rubes. Why take a lie over the truth? Why do they do that? But you know, man has been doing that since man was created. From the very beginning, man walked with God. And God said, and it said, and God said. And then there's this serpent crawling in on his belly in the dust. And this snake says, did God really say? So, on one hand, we have God. On the other hand, we have a serpent. On this hand, God says. And on this side, the snake says, did God really say? And man believes the snake. Okay? So as you're going through this world today, if you're wondering what the world is going to believe, the world is going to believe the snake. It really doesn't matter what we have to say about anything, though we still will keep proclaiming the truth. They're still going to believe the snake. And it doesn't matter, really. Lies have been the fabric of deception between man and God for all of history. And mankind has always chosen to believe the lies over God's truth and the sad thing is is we are going to find that out really firsthand for ourselves in the coming years let's close in prayer